My name is Janet. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and it's so good to be with you here on this summer Sunday morning. It's good to look out and see your faces. And um, yeah, I especially want to just say thank you. Uh, welcome to those of you who may be visiting, oftentimes in the summer. You know, people come and just check out church when they have a chance. And so welcome to you. If you're exploring faith, if you're new to Jesus, we're really, really glad you're here. And as you may know, if you've been with us for a few weeks, we're teaching week by week through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, um, telling the life of Jesus. And so we are in Luke, and this is chapter 16. And though we may want to skip it, we're not going to do that. Um, we spent the last three weeks in chapter 15, which was so good, uh, talking about a very familiar parable of Jesus to many of you perhaps, the parable of the prodigal son or sons actually, both the younger son and the older son desperately needed the love of the father. And so if you missed those, go back and catch up on them. And today we're in chapter 16, which is takes a bit of a turn, but it's a good one to look at. Um, I think you know, in my studies this week and the last couple weeks, few weeks, uh, when I was asked to teach on this passage, every single book I opened, commentary I read, message I listened to said, hands down, this is Jesus' most difficult parable to understand. <laughs> so I'm like, yay, fun, here we go. Okay, but before we get into today's teaching, I just want to share with the church family that um, someone who was a loved part of this family, Ernie Friesen, has gone to be with Jesus. So he's in the presence of the Lord this morning. Even as we worshiped, he's worshiping. And yet his family, his wife Ruth and the kids, they miss him. He, he um, had a battle with cancer. And um, so the memorial's tomorrow at one o'clock in this building, which Ernie helped build. In fact, I think he was one of the ones on the shovel that turned the sod. Um, so many years ago to begin this building project. So yes, let's support Ruth and the family as they miss their dad, their husband, their grandpa, and support the family. Can we pray together? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that whether we're standing here on earth or we're standing in your presence in heaven, we're praising you. And God, we uh, know that Ernie loved you and served you with his whole life. So Jesus, that's a comfort to the family, but would you surround them with your perfect peace, your goodness, your kindness, as they remember someone they love and say goodbye at the same time. Help us to be a church family that supports them too. And now, God, as we look into your word, we know that these words spoken by Jesus have truth and hope and meaning for us 2,000 years later. Help us to have ears to understand and to listen to what you might be saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, if you were paying attention to Samuel, and I'm sure you were while he was reading those passages, you will understand why I've entitled today's message, How to Cheat Your Boss and Look Out for Yourself. No, no not really. But we could say, maybe, how to use money to buy friends. No, that's not what Jesus is teaching either. <laughs> One theologian I read this week said, this parable, quote, bristles with problems. Bristles with problems. I thought that was a funny way of saying it. But of course, 
It's talking about money. And we're talking about money in church. And if you're here and like, great, I came on a Sunday when they're talking about money in church, we may all be feeling a little bristly for different reasons, and I get that. But um, did you know that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about prayer or love combined? Did you know that one-third of Jesus' parables have to do with money? Well, why is that? Because I think he knows that as we seek to follow him, as we seek to be his apprentice, that we need God's perspective on the relationship that we have with money. Because money, at its core, is a heart issue, right? And God always wants to deal with us at the level of our hearts. So, talking about money, it could land differently for all of us. Some of us, you know, already might be feeling a little resistance, like, don't talk to me about money. I kind of enjoy my money. I enjoy the security it brings, and I don't want to talk about it. Others may feel like, I've got plenty. It's not an issue. Why are we bringing this up? Others may feel that, you know, this is a big problem in my life, in the life of my, in my relationship, my family. Money brings conflict. You know, it is one of those top three things that people fight about, right? Money. Or some of us may feel a little guilty right off the top. Like, I don't manage my money very well. I know that. They're not going to talk about this, are they? Some of us might feel despair at the topic of money because we know that uh, money brings worry and anxiety, maybe wondering how we're going to make ends meet, and it's a constant challenge. But whatever we're feeling, this topic is so important. Jesus thinks so because money affects us all on a daily basis. And whether we are new to Jesus, we are far from God, or we've been a Christian for many, many years, this affects us. Our past experiences with money also impact us a lot. It really, do, really does. In my home growing up, money was a big deal. Now, from as young as I can remember, um, we were taught and instructed how to tithe, which meant giving 10% of whatever we earned to the offering, to church. And this was, a, this was a requirement. It was rather legalistic. If I earned $12 babysitting, I kept a little ledger and gave $1.20 to church. And, and we were instructed to do that. But in general, in our home, there was an ethic, what I call an ethic of scarcity, <laughs> which meant that one, our, the most important values that we were taught was work hard, stay out of debt, and save every penny you can. Be as frugal as you can. So why would you ever eat out or take a holiday or give gifts? No, you sewed your own clothes and cut your own hair and canned your own food and shot your own meat and fixed your own car and on and on and on. My parents took this to the extreme. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> you can ask any, anyone in my family. Your value was based on how hard you worked and what was in your bank account. We knew how to pinch pennies. We were even instructed as to how many squares of toilet paper you were to use at a time or how, how many inches you could fill the bathtub. So these things had practical outcomes. Every one of us has beliefs and values and habits around money. We just do. 
So what's shaping yours? And would we be open today to allow Jesus to shape us when it comes to this topic? Did you know that we can trust Jesus about money? Jesus understood money. He knew what it meant to live with money. Seems like, there, you know, he grew up with a home business. His father was a carpenter. Um, he told stories about land ownership and wealth and inheritance. He uh, had, you know, as his, him, he and his disciples and others traveled, they had wealthy women who underwrote the expenses. Their group had a treasurer. His name was Judas. Wasn't very good at the job, but they had a treasurer. So they had money. And Jesus didn't shy away from teaching about money. But most importantly, Jesus cares about us deeply. He cares about us. He loves you and me. And he knows the struggle that we have with money. How we, whether we have a little or a lot, we can be consumed with it. We can have anxiety over it, be preoccupied with it. He loves us. He wants to set us free when it comes to how we relate to money. So uh, my prayer is that this message is hopeful, hopeful for all of us. God is not stingy. God is the giver of good gifts, scripture says. Those gifts are for us to enjoy. And I know this kind of message comes with attention, doesn't it? Because we hear about uh, um, a, a message like this from Jesus, and we're like, ah, how do I work that out? Like, is it okay to go on a holiday with my children? Is it good to buy a gift for a friend? You know, how much? This is, there's a lot of tension here. But Jesus can be trusted. He will direct us. And God does give us uh, relationships, gifts, all kinds of treasures to enjoy. So we're going to seek to understand this important te teaching from Jesus, and we're going to cover three areas that I think just, you know, are, are, we can glean from this passage. And the first one is ownership. Whose money is it anyway? The second is opportunity. We all have limited time and limited resources to manage. And eternity. What are the true riches that truly matter that Jesus is talking about here? Okay, Jesus is speaking, uh, as it says right there in verse 1, to his disciples. But we could see later on, starting in verse 14, which we're not going to cover today, but the religious leaders are listening in because they care a lot about money. It's very important to them. And Jesus' teaching on money really challenges traditions and their practices. Essentially, it, it, turned, them, it, it turned things upside down when it came to money. And you'll see that throughout scripture, wherever Jesus is teaching about money. It was countercultural. So in this story, there's two main parts. The first eight verses or so deal with the story that Jesus told, which was a parable, which meant it had a lot of elements in it. And it was a story they could relate to. It was, it was uh, using common things they would be familiar with. And the last half, uh, till thir uh, verse 13, deals with Jesus teaching about wealth. And we're going to go back and forth between the story and the teachings just to help understand this parable. So the story begins with a rich man. This man was very rich. He was a very wealthy landowner. And we'll see that as we get into the story. But he employed a manager, a steward, as it's sometimes called. Now, a steward in Jesus' day didn't own anything. 
because he had, but he had complete authority over his master's business affairs and his master's money. A steward would be completely trusted. He would conduct all the business in his master's name. He could write the checks, he could pay the tenant farmers, he kept the books. But this particular steward, Jesus is telling us in this story, was accused of wasting his master's possessions. The word wasting there actually is the word squandering. And if that's ringing a bell for you a little bit, you'll be thinking back to maybe the last three weeks if you were here, and the story of the prodigal son. And the younger son takes his father's money, and what does he do? He squanders it, right? Squanders the wealth of his father. So these two words are identical here. Now we don't know if this dishonest manager was skimming for himself off the top, or if he was just completely inept with money, or if he was like cooking the books. We don't know. But at this point, he gained a reputation in the town for squandering his master's money. He is an unfaithful steward. Now, Jesus is deliberately using this concept, this picture of a steward or a manager to make a central point in this story. And that is, we are God's stewards. God owns everything, and he requires us to be faithful managers of what he entrusts to us. So this is where we begin. And you and I, if we want to be faithful stewards, not unfaithful ones, we need to get this um, straight right off the top. We don't own our stuff, our bank accounts, our cars, our homes, our time, our lives. God does. Now, we may hold title to some of those things, but essentially, God owns them. And if we live and act as though it all belongs to us and we spend it how, is, how we want, we are unfaithful stewards and we're not trustworthy. Now remember I mentioned tithing was such a big deal growing up for me in my fundamentalist kind of Christian home? Well, tithing is a good practice. It's a good habit. I'm certainly very glad that I learned that habit from a young age. But I clearly understood growing up that 10% was God God's, and 90% was mine to do with whatever I pleased. And you know, Jesus' disciples also knew all about tithing. The religious leaders made sure of that. The Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the time, they tithed a tenth of everything. Jesus even states elsewhere in scriptures that they, they tithed of their herb gardens. So the tiny amounts of cumin and dill and Oregano, they tithed out of their herb gardens. They were scrupulous about tithing, but it was to be legalistic and to follow all the rules. Jesus upheld the tithe, but he was more concerned about their hearts because there are few more accurate barometers of our heart than our money. The early Christians were taught to give as the Lord prospered them, which means give generously and you will receive, and as you receive more, give more. But did you know that CRA statistics reveal that the more money people earn, the smaller the percentage they give away? Meaning that for most people, more means more is mine. And if we understand this principle, though, that everything we have is on loan from God, that's a really good way to think about it. Everything we have is on loan from God. 
it's a gift from him. Then we realize it's not mine, but I want to be a faithful steward. Our job is to use God's resources to further God's purposes in all of life. And that's how we love and care for others. It's how we provide for our family or our friends. It's how we care for the poor. It's how we support our church family. It encompasses it all. Now, it's really easy to slip into the thinking that, well, what I have in life is due to my own efforts, my skill, and my hard work. That's what we, that's what we inherently think, right? And we especially think that if we have something to show for ourselves. But think about it. Don't our skills and strengths, abilities, achievements, aren't they all really uh, come our way as gifts from God? What do we do to deserve those things? Especially if we're born in an affluent country like Canada. See, by the world's standards, we're all rich in possessions and wealth. When we talk about ownership, how do you see your resources? Be honest. Do we see our money and possessions as fundamentally ours or God's? You can think about it this way. If we see our money as ours, we'll ask, how much of this should I share with God? But if we see our money and possessions as his, we'll ask, what does he want me to do with all of it? That's an important distinction. But ownership also has another side. Our money can own us. And Jesus talks about this. See, the shrewd manager got himself in a big predicament because he was serving money and not his master as he was supposed to. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, verse 13. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is not just currency. Money has power. It actually has spiritual power. The actual word Jesus uses here is mammon, and some, of, some translations might still use that word mammon. It's an Aramaic word, and it originally it has its roots in this concept, that mammon is that in which one puts one's trust or confidence. In some translations, mammon's capitalized. It's like it's personified. Tim Keller, a uh, pastor from New York, he's uh, passed away now, but he writes this. Greed is a particularly dangerous sin because it hides in our hearts while binding us to our materialistic desires. Money has tremendous power over us. For some, it's our significance. For others, our security. Jesus is personifying money as a rival god. Jesus is making unmistakably clear that money is not some impersonal medium of exchange. Money is not something morally neutral, a, a, a resource to be used in good or bad ways, depending solely upon our attitude towards it. No, Keller is saying money is a power that seeks to dominate us. Money is godlike. Money is powerful. Well, of course, why, why do we refer to money as purchasing power? We attach symbols to it, like status and worth and prestige and glamour. I mean, why do we refer to currency as the almighty dollar? Because it has power. And it can easily be a substitute God. And if we aren't careful, it will rule or ruin our lives. I remember being in 
where was I? Somewhere that there was a casino. I can't remember where that was. I don't go to them very often, but I happened to be in one. And um, there was a man just sitting by a garbage can in a corner, and he was well-dressed. And he was just weeping, just crying with his head in his hands by a garbage can. And I thought, that's this. Money can ruin our lives. And that's to the extreme, but it can control us. It is powerful. Jesus states that serving two masters is simply impossible. We can't be devoted to our money and devoted to God. John Wesley, he was a prominent uh, English cleric in the 1700s, and he says this, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. It's a heart issue. So the interesting question that is not bad to ask ourselves every now and then is, do I love money? And, you know, if I have to look at that truthfully, sometimes my answer would be yes. I do love money. I enjoy having a savings account. I like having a debit card on tap or investments yielding returns. I have no idea if they do or don't. I don't look at that stuff, but... I like the options that money gives me. I like the security it can provide. So how do we dethrone money? How do we take it off this pedestal and break its control over our lives? Well, understanding ownership is so foundational, and Jesus' teaching is clear. Money is God's gift to us on loan, and we manage it. Ultimately, it's not ours, it's God's. But here's the amazing part. It's that God entrusts money to us. Like, that's crazy, isn't it? God entrusts resources and money and all these things to us and gives us opportunity, which is our second point here, opportunity. We have to understand ownership, but we also have to understand opportunity that God gives us. See, the dishonest manager is caught And the master hauls him in and says, you got to give account. Close up the books, you're fired. And this shrewd rascal, he doesn't want to do manual labor. He doesn't want to beg. So he devises a plan. And he calls in all the tenant farmers who will owe a portion of their crop to the landowner at harvest time. And he tells them to quickly sit down, rewrite your your debt notice. And he, um, he... has them quickly adjust the amounts they owe. Why? So that when he is tossed out on the street and unemployed, he will have made friends by cutting them such a great deal. Friends that will repay him. How? By taking him into their homes. Likely his accommodation and all his living expenses were provided by the landowner that he currently worked for. So what happens? 900 gallons of oil become 450, just like that, cut in half. That would represent three years' wages. A 1,000 bushels of wheat become 800. That would represent eight to nine years' wages. You would need 100 acres to grow a 1,000 bushels of wheat in in the first century. So this story seems to say that he does this one by one with all of the master's debtors. Now, there's so much debate among scholars about this clever plan of this manager. Like, was he just uh, removing the interest and, you know, on, on the crops? Um, and 
you may know that Jews were not permitted to charge interest to one another. So maybe it was interest that he was eliminating. Was he eliminating his commission right off the top from the debt owed? And some scholars think, well, yes, because the uh, landowner didn't um, toss him into prison. He actually, you know, came around to admire his manager for being so prudent and clever as to prepare for his future unemployment. But either way, either way, the manager's, the, the manager's motives were self-serving. He was making sure he would be looked after after he lost his job. And that's the end of the story. Jesus just stops there. But then verses 8 and 9 are so key to understanding the main point. They say this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Okay, Jesus, are you commending the way the manager in this story handled his master's affairs? No, not at all. Jesus is saying this, though. He's saying, people who don't follow God seem to be more wise, more prudent, have more foresight in how they plan for the future with their money than people who do follow God, who, in this case, Jesus is referring to them as people of the light. But then Jesus goes on to say, make the most of every opportunity with the resources you have been given. Be a faithful steward, not an unfaithful one. See, it's the, it's the manager's prudence. It's his practical foresight that Jesus is highlighting here. And we can, we can understand a few things from this, from Jesus' teaching. The first one, time is short. Time is short. There will come a time just like happened with this steward, when we will all be called to account for how we've managed the resources that God has given us. And, you know, frankly, this should serve as a warning, but it also is a beautiful opportunity. What else do we know? We know that Jesus says money will fail. Verse 9, it says when it is gone, not if it is gone, or if it goes, but when it is gone. It may be gone in an instant. We might lose our savings, or we might have these unexpected costs that just wipe us out. Maybe unemployment, maybe war, maybe theft, maybe natural disasters. But one thing is clear. Our money will fail us. Jesus says so. So if we put our hope in our resources, we're going to be disappointed. It's only a matter of when, not if. Or, like Jesus is referring to here, like the steward, when we face our own unemployment. Really, Jesus is saying literally, our own death, our money will count for nothing. The only thing that will actually count is what we did with it. Well, here's a story. Perhaps you've heard of the elderly lady who was married to a very stingy husband. He made a good salary, salary, but they lived super frugally because he insisted on putting a good percent of his paycheck, paycheck under the mattress. Now, he didn't trust the bank, and he said that the money was going to come in very handy in their old age. But unfortunately, before that happened, he fell ill. And towards the end of his illness, he made his wife promise in the presence of his brothers that she would put the money that he had under the mattress into his coffin um, so that he could buy his way into heaven if he had to. 
It was an odd request, but his wife assured the brothers that she was a woman of her word and she would do just as he asked. So the following morning, she took this large sum of money and went and deposited it in the bank. And when her husband died, she wrote a check and put it in the casket. <laughs> now, that lady was shrewd. She knew his savings would be of no use to him after he died. And Jesus says something similar. Three chapters back, Luke 12, he says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So we have this window of opportunity, this lifetime that we've been given, and we have these resources to manage, and Jesus says, use your worldly wealth wisely. Because just like the, the manager who was dishonest, we may be suddenly faced with an opportunity and he prudently cuts these deals to gain friendships, right? Jesus is saying, and this is hard to understand, we are to use our worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves. That's odd. Are we supposed to buy our friends? But Jesus is teaching a spiritual principle here. In your earthly life, make friends. That is, spend for others. Be generous. Extend mercy. Use your money and resources to reach others because the result will be friendships for life that endure into eternity. Jesus describes how this works when we're accountable with our money. See, accountability is so inherent in stewardship. Someone's going to be checking the books. Now, here at North Langley, we have accountants that do reviews of our books every year. We want to be trusted. We want to be above board. So Jesus says in verses 10 and 11, Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with real riches? Now, I find it so ironic, really, that you know, money is such a big deal for us, but God views our money as a very little thing. If you can be trusted in little things. But it is a litmus test, isn't it? Are we trustworthy to manage God's money, which is on temporary loan to us? And if we are, we can handle true riches. Those are the things that we receive and give in God's kingdom, his grace, his wisdom, all the benefits of being his child, living according to his ways, impacting others, a life that never ends. All these things are true riches that we will be trusted with if we can be faithful in the little now, these verses here do not teach a prosperity gospel, meaning that if you're faithful with a little money, God will bless you with a lot of money. I'm not saying that that never happens, but that's not what these verses are teaching. Jesus is saying, if you're faithful with the resources entrusted with you, God will give you true riches, friendship with himself. So when we think about using our money, what goes through our minds? Do we think if we had more, we'd give more away? Well, how generous are we now? Do we somehow imagine that if more was deposited into our accounts, we would be more generous? I mean, speaking for myself, I, if we're honest, I think we've all been, uh, in some ways, unfaithful stewards, unfaithful managers, because being a faithful steward is hard, and it's costly. 
it's sacrificial. It, it demands our time, it demands our comfort, it demands our homes, our wallets, and on and on. Our culture bombards us with a message that these things are ours, we've earned them. So we practice generosity. It breaks the grip that money holds over us. I mean, even uh, counselors and psychologists and science tells us that generous people are more happy people. And it has nothing to do with how much or how little you have. Generosity breaks the grip of money over us. Do you know that North Langley has a very active benevolence fund? It's called the Acts Project, and it's named after uh, the early Christians in the, in the book of Acts who were um, uh, sharing their resources in common and meeting needs of the people. So probably every week we hear of needs and here at the church, and because of the Acts Project, we can meet those needs, whether it's groceries or someone who loses all their possessions in a fire or whatever it is. And the money that this church family gives meets practical needs, countless needs. Maybe some of you sponsor needy children through our partnership with Kawasha in Africa or another organization. Children, you'll likely never meet face to face. Some of you give to missionaries who are sharing the gospel or serving the poor. And when you give to the local church here or your local church, you make things possible like Alpha. And people are encountering God's love. People you may never meet or may never know. Often we don't know the impact that our giving makes. And that's why Jesus links our giving to eternity. Eternity. He says this in verse 9 again. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Welcomed by who? The angels? You know, a better rendering actually says, so that when it is gone, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. The they, the friends, your money and resources impacted. So this last point, Jesus wants to think about eternity. This world is not our home. The dis dishonest manager was called to account and he was quickly scrambling to make accommodations that were temporary. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, store up for yourselves treasure, where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure stored? There's, that's where you will find your heart. The important thing I think that Jesus is saying is to invest your resources for the Lord now. Like I said, most, most of us think that we'll just wait until we have enough. 30 years ago, there was a survey done, and I'm sure the amounts are very different now, but a survey done asking people how much they thought they would need to have, like, quote, the American dream or the Canadian dream. Those who earned 25,000 thought about it and said they would need 54,000. And those who earned around 100,000 annually said they could make the dream on 192,000. Well, these figures actually just indicate that we typically think we need to double our income in order to have the good life or in order to enjoy things or have enough to share. I was reminded this week of the time Jesus fed more than 5,000 people. The disciples had come to him. It was after a long day of teaching, and the disciples came to him and said, these people are hungry. How, how are we going to feed them, or what are we going to do? And Jesus said, you feed them. 
And the disciples are like, what? We don't have enough. But what did Jesus use? Five loaves, two fishes, a little boy's lunch. We rarely think we have enough. But God uses what we have. God uses what we give. He multiplies it. Rob and I are approaching retirement, if that's even a thing in God's kingdom. That's a whole other topic. I don't think it is. But I admit to sitting down and, you know, trying to puzzle out the numbers. Let's see. How long are we going to live? Um, how much will we spend? How much does the government contribute? And on and on. Planning is good. We don't want to be a burden. But does anyone ever ask at your funeral how much money you had or what you were worth? Well, maybe our kids will ask. Are my kids in here? <laughs> but just like the guy with the money under the mattress, you can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. Not with money, not with good deeds. But Jesus is making something clear. What we do with our money really reveals if the kingdom of God has gotten a hold of us. It reveals where our heart is. And if we've received grace and love and mercy from God, why would we not extend that same mercy to others using our resources? And when we finally walk into heaven, well, maybe we'll run or we'll skip, I don't know. But when we finally get to heaven, based entirely on what Christ has done for us, wouldn't it be wonderful to be greeted by the people we know and people we don't know who are there with us because in some way we've spent our resources on others? See, Jesus seems to be teaching that eternity and this life are somehow connected. And he's making the point that people that we've influenced for him, possibly using our resources, our time, uh, whatever God's given us, they will recognize us. They will welcome us. They will say, thank you for sending that money overseas. Thank you for opening up your home. Thank you for sponsoring me as a child. Thank you that you gave and I came to know Jesus at North Langley Community Church. Thank you for making time to serve me. And these, I think, are the true riches that are stored up for us in heaven. Imagine if we thought of our giving with eternity in mind. My mother-in-law, Louise, went home to be with Jesus about three weeks ago. She was 92. And part of the joy at her memorial was reflecting on the impact that her life had on others here on earth. And also imagining what her welcome was like in heaven from Jesus for sure. But from the crowds of people that I'm sure were lining up eager to tell her about how she opened her home and that's where someone found Jesus. Or she and uh, my father-in-law gave boatloads of money to their church and to countless organizations and missionaries around the globe, how they shared Christ relentlessly with people and led them to Jesus because they invested their money and their time for others. I bet her receiving line is still going on. And you know, we often hear people talk about something called the bucket list, right? It's before I kick the bucket, you know, I want to do certain things. But what if this was on our bucket list? What if we said, I want to give away as much as I can here on earth and spend my money on things that last for eternity? 
Now, how much money that will be is different for all of us. And how do we make these kind of decisions? Well, that could be a whole nother topic, but mostly it's a matter of personal conscience, listening to the Holy Spirit, prayer, and responding in obedience to the opportunities that God brings our way. C.S. Lewis writes, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And is that not what God did when he sent his son Jesus into the world for us? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus knows we have a debt that we cannot pay. It's our sin. But he doesn't reduce it by 20% or even 50%. He paid it in full. How? By going to the cross, by dying a death on our behalf. And when he rose from the dead, he made it possible. He made a way for us to be called friends of God. And that's the greatest treasure of all. And if you have not experienced that treasure yet, please come pray with someone. Come talk to someone who brought you here this morning. Sign up for the Alpha course in the fall. We'd love for you to be our guest there. That's the greatest treasure of all, that we would be friends of God. And why would we not want to share that generous love with others so they too can experience a friendship with God? There is so much to think about in this topic of money and what Jesus is teaching here. That's why he taught on it a lot, because we have to get it. And rather than just go straight into worship or you know, straight out the doors and to lunch, we're gonna take just a short time of reflection this morning. Because it's not important what I said here or what you know, someone else thinks. What is important is what God is saying to you this morning. So we're not gonna rush off right away. We're just gonna take some time to be honest. God knows our hearts anyway. He knows our spending habits. He knows our anxieties. He knows our wishes and our hopes. So this is just an open invitation to talk to God and ask him for help. Ask him for direction. Ask him to speak to us. So if you're, if you're okay with, that and, with this and you're comfortable with it, just Maybe bow your heads and close your eyes. And the band's going to play a bit uh, as well as we, as we um, take time this morning. But it's good for us to do this. Maybe we know that God wants to meet us right here in our preoccupation with money. It's hard not to be preoccupied with money. Maybe some of us are very anxious over money. Maybe we have an addiction to spending and for what money can buy. Maybe it's time to ask God, how does our overspending or our oversaving reveal that money has become godlike in our lives? Remember, we can't serve both. It's not ours anyway. And as you're here this morning, maybe you just your heart is, I want to grow in generosity. We need help being faithful stewards. So ask Jesus, what opportunities are you giving me? Who can I talk to or pray with about that? But what do you worry most about concerning money? And what does this anxiety really reveal about your heart? What do you ultimately believe about God? 
you struggle thinking God won't provide for you? Are you worried that you won't have enough? Are you worried that God can't be trusted? Do you wonder that if you live generously, you might miss out on things you hope to have in this life? Talk to God about those things. God is not stingy. His heart is pouring out in love for you and generosity towards you. It's okay to be honest with God. Take time to listen and listen to God's heart for you. Let's just take a few minutes. that you're faithful to us even when we've been unfaithful stewards thank you that your goodness overflows our cups are full with the true riches of heaven help us to loosen our grip on things of this world on possessions on money help us to trust you the giver of every good gift the one who meets our needs the one who enables us to meet the needs of others recognize that we need help thank you for your patience with us your graciousness with us and help us to seek and obey you and to follow your leading with our resources thank you that we can trust you in Jesus name amen we're going to sing a song now it's called from the inside out and it starts like this, a thousand times I've failed, and how appropriate this is for this topic. A thousand times I've failed, made promises, haven't kept them, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, and I probably will, I'm caught in your grace. And here's a, here's a line that hopefully we can all sing this morning. In my heart and my soul, I give you control. Can we give God control of this area of our lives today? Let's pray that we can. Also during this worship time, the prayer room is open at the back. There will be people to pray with at the front. Just come with anything that's on your heart, anything that you want to trust God with. He's here and he's faithful.